So my main reason for running this conference really is to have brothers and sisters with me from all over who are just like desperate to worship. And then but the rest of I'll do the teaching in order to get everyone to gather together for the worship times. I just absolutely, absolutely love it. It's so great. Um, <laughs> there's one joke I heard in the bit just chatting this morning that was too good to waste. I felt like more people should know it. So, you know, Les, yesterday, Liz Green asked that question, what would we lose if we lost Matthew? And apparently Andrew Larkin went, the papacy? Which I thought was the most fantastic response. I was like, that would have been a really good. Um, but uh, we had some more feedback from yesterday. And I wanted to start, actually, by picking up on Stuart's question. The, the discussions we had yesterday around the tables as we were finishing, you know, because I got the timing of the curry wrong. And I was going to do a little bit of a... What, how, how would you preach this and so on? And I hope you had some helpful discussions on your tables about what we would do with it. But, oh gosh, we've not got the slides. Yes, we do. Um, so we talked, to, you know, remember we were talking about what, how, what would you do? How, how does this shape preaching? Does it shape preaching? If so, how do you avoid it becoming completely... Oh, here's another little interesting point and a little bit fussy and pedantic, which is not... My, my short answer, and I don't think it's quite as simple as this, but my short answer would be, I don't think this makes very much difference to the way I preach Matthew, but I think it makes quite a lot of difference to the way I preach the Old Testament. That's the short version. I think, in other words, if I'm... So let's take the example I got excited about yesterday that many of us might be going, oh, I'm not quite sure I buy it. But the triumphal entry as Jehu, I'm obviously not going to preach a passage on Matthew 21 and go, this is a little bit like Jehu, son of Nimshi, who's driving is like the, obviously that's just a completely, because it's going from the more, from the clear to the obscure. But when you're going from the obscure to the clear, it really helps because then you're preaching through kings or preaching through any number of these passages on the right. The the story of, I mean, Jeremiah helped by Ebed-Melech, for instance, you're going, this just looks like a random little tale until you realize, oh no, this is actually, this is like a, this is almost a type. Of Jesus. So you, the typology generally goes, doesn't it, from the, the thing that you don't really understand and can't see why it's relevant or good news to the bit that is. And this, so this is really a classic, you know, let's preach Christ in all of Scripture sort of pitch, but I think it's a particular way of doing it that I think bears a lot of fruit, depending on where, where in the Bible you are. There's clearly some passages that it doesn't quite work with in Matthew that you then work with other types. But that would be my short version. I'm sure there probably are passages where I draw out the connection. I'm having a look and seeing. Um, but yeah, not many, I would think, because, it, because the, the Matthew sense is relatively plain, but it's really good for the Old Testament. I hope that's, that's my short answer. Um, was there any, were there any other hangover, like starting each session with questions for hanging over, were there any other hangover questions from yesterday that were just sort of left unresolved or foggy as a result of the discussions, or are you just basically trying to, oh, I can't remember what it was about. What gospel is it again? Because that's fine if you are, but if there's anyone who's got sort of Festering question. Okay, well, we'll, in that case, we'll move on. So, just to finish the thing on typology, um, and then and then move on. I think there are here's a few payoffs of the method when it comes to exegesis, which is obviously not quite the same as the answer to the the question about preaching. By the way, Stuart, the one exception I would make is I actually think the genealogy of Jesus, which is obscure in Matthew, is made a lot more sense of when you set it in the whole Jesus as Israel frame. Um, as we'll see probably in the next few minutes. But so I think there are some exegetical problems in Matthew that this approach really helps us with. So one of them is obviously Matthew's very stylized genealogy, which is, you know, it's slightly irksome for those who, when you're new to the Gospels or new to the Bible, then you read the first Gospel and the first 17 verses are filled with 
exegetical dilemmas that even a quick Google will say, aha, look at all the problems with the Bible, that sort of thing. But you know, there's formalized structure, there's three 14s, but what on earth is he doing? Because one of the 14s is, seems to only have 13, depending on how you count. And there's lots of people missing, there's various people misspelt or misidentified, all of those sorts of charges that get made about Matthew 1, 1 to 17. If you haven't come across those, I'm sorry, because I've just given you a problem rather than <laughs> solved one. You'd find those pre- in preaching, you ever do that? And it's like, I'm going to give you a problem and then resolve it. Like, I'm back where I started. I didn't know that problem existed. So I've just done that. Um, but obviously you get the, the surprising inclusions. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. Bathsheba isn't even called Bathsheba, called the wife of Uriah. Um, the changes from Asaph to Asa from Amos. Oh, sorry. Asaph instead of Asa. Amos. Yeah, Amos instead of Ammon and so on. Why do these things happen? And obviously they've been corrected in some manuscripts and corrected in some translations. If you use the NIV, they've just straightened it out for you. Just given you the, obviously it isn't what Matthew said, but they've given you what they think Matthew must have meant. So effectively saying this is a typo. We think Matthew's made a typo. Um, So sorry, now again, (laughs) now doubly worried again, I didn't know I had a problem and what's wrong with my Bible? Um, But so these these are some of the problems that you face, right, in Matthew chapter one. And then similarly, the baffling prophetic citations in Matthew one to two. So the virgin will conceive and bear a son, which Obviously, it was addressed to Ahaz, and if he preached Isaiah 7, you'd be like, this is, how, how did he really get from there to there? And you have to work that through, obviously. Out of Egypt, I called my son. We've just preached a series on Hosea in our church, and it's very in the flow of Hosea. It's very obvious this is talking about the nation of Israel 700 years before. It's not talking about a future prophecy of a Messiah, or at least it doesn't sound that it is at all. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and the original context isn't about babies at all. It's about Israel going into exile. So what's that got to do with the idea of the, children, the massacre of the innocents and all that sort of thing? And then perhaps worst of all, this is spoken, what, that what is spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And obviously doesn't, there's an awful lot of eager beaver commentators just ready to go, well, the, the prophets never say that. That's not a quotation from anywhere in the Bible. You do a search and any, there's just no such thing. So you now got lots of problems, and imagine many of us have come across them, and some of us haven't, but those sorts of problems are quite difficult without some sort of reading of Matthew as a whole, and I certainly would say Matthew 1 and 2, that see this book typologically and that read Jesus as living out the story of Israel. And when you do, you end up with lots of, I think, profitable solutions to many of these problems, which not only resolve the problem, but actually help us see what Matthew's doing and I have implications, really, for our understanding of his purpose in the book and drawing us even to worship and those sorts of things. So does Matthew's 3 times 14 suggest a 6 times 7 structure, which obviously is a very, that's a very Daniel idea, that, you know, the history is in 7 sevens, or this phase of Israel's exile is 7 sevens, and then is Christ starting the seventh week in that sort of system? Is that partly why they've got these, these 14s? Obviously, we know that omissions in genealogies are very common. You've got loads and loads of missed gaps the father of really means like the ancestor of in in the way we would use it Um, and a lot of people are omitted I mean specifically a number of the Ahab kings from the line of Ahab are omitted and so you don't find Athaliah you don't find Amaziah it jumps to Uzziah who's sometimes confusingly called Azariah but it sort of skips over the generations of Ahab almost going yeah we can we can park that one because some of the kings of Judah had Ahab's ancestry because of intermarriage in kings and so it just skips those and then lands with Azariah, as kings called him, or Uzziah. Um, the inclusions in, you know, highlight Gentiles 
and notorious women, which is obviously the classic Christmas way of preaching this passage. Look at these, look at these troubled, you know, representative in different ways of outsiders coming into the kingdom in the form of Tamar and Rahab. Obviously, Rahab the prostitute, Tamar, who, whose modes of, you know, she's a victim, but she's also, her modes of seduction are pretty, you know, creative. Um, Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Uriah. That's a, so you've got these various people represent, even for Matthew. So those who say Matthew's very Jewish gospel, it's all about the Jews. You say, so why has he structured his genealogy to bring in as many Gentiles and women as he can to, to highlight what God is doing in Christ and how Israel is now going to be comprised. Israel has always been and is increasingly going to be comprised of Gentiles as well as Jews. Um, they sort of move through the different phases of history, which again connects to Jez's comment yesterday about prophets, priests, kings, um, and or prophets, kings, priests, in that order that the prophetic genealogy and then the kingly genealogy and then have more of a priestly genealogy towards the end. You could also comment even that these, what the NIV thinks are typos, I'm not, I don't think they are. I think there's deliberate, the deliberate hints. Obviously, Jewish people who know the genealogy aren't going to get confused. Did they think Asaph, the psalmist, was in fact king of Israel? Of course not. They know that his name is Asa, but by calling him Asaph, there's a sort of a po- you know, which is just we would do this a lot in our, you know, with our names. Just looked, you know, Tony, Anthony, you know, the same same name extended. So you'd be by calling him with the other the other thing, which lots of us have names which are contracted or expanded like that. But by calling him Asaph instead of Asa, there's a sort of this is not just that Jesus is fulfilling the story of the kings. He's also fulfilling the story of all of the all of Israel's history. So he's the the, the great songwriter par excellence. Amos as opposed to Amon or Ammon. The prophet, of, the great prophet of justice, is Amos been thrown into the genealogy on purpose? Is in that sense, is he not? Is, it's not like he thinks. It's not like he's going. Oh, Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, was in fact king of Israel, and I've got confused. I don't think that's what Matthew's doing at all. I think he's deliberately throwing in these sort of allusions to other elements of Israel's story that Jesus is encapsulating in himself. And then the prophetic citations down here, I think, only make sense if Jesus is Israel. You can't read them otherwise. If you think, oh, they, because they, they very clearly are not, the out of Egypt I called my son is obviously not about a, a future Messiah in its original context. But if you read the story of Jesus as if he is living out the story of Israel, all of those com- citations make sense. And in fact, I think that's the only way they do make sense. So in Isaiah, you, you, you have these two, if you preach through Isaiah you know, in, in detail, I imagine if we preach through Isaiah quickly, we'd just jump a lot of these sections. Um, but there are two sons with fourfold names in Isaiah 8 and 8 to 9. Mahashal al-Hashbaz, speed the spoil, haste the plunder. Um, and then the Davidic king, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. There's two fourfold name boys who are being born at this time uh, in, the, in the prophetic literature. And so the idea that the virgin will conceive and bear a son in Isaiah 7 is then so what kind of a son is it, are we going to have? Are we going to have a son who represents the plundering of Israel? Or are we going to have a son who represents the everlasting governance and peace of David's branch? And of course, that's what Isaiah is saying. And so that's why Matthew, I think, is free to use it, because he's seeing Jesus in fulfillment of that bit of Israel's story. The Hosea quote only makes any sense if Jesus, if Jesus is Israel. It's the, you know, what Matthew seems to believe is that Jesus went into Egypt and then came back out of Egypt and was restored to his people because he was living out what Israel did. And that that's really the reason. 
So it's not just that Jesus is Moses, it's that Jesus is the whole nation who left their land because they were vulnerable and they moved down into Egypt and they stayed there for a while and then they got brought out again and back to the land. And in doing that, Jesus is living out the shame of Israel's period of enslavement and exodus because Jesus is Israel. He's living this story out in his own life. It also has God, of course, identifying Jesus as my son, if you read it that way. Out of Egypt, God is saying, I called my son the son of God. So you think, if, if Jesus is Israel, that makes perfect sense. But if he's not, it's quite a difficult jump to make. Jeremiah 31 is at the heart of Jeremiah's book of comfort, just before the promise of new covenant. So you know the, the book of comfort in Jeremiah, which is sort of right in the middle, these sort of chapters 29 to, to people starting in slightly different places, but 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, that, that section of Jeremiah is just so full of consolation, comfort, and encouragement in the midst of a book that's pretty judgy, right? Lots of, you know, kind of, but then there's, ah, oh, in the middle of the book. And right in the middle of that is this promise about Israel being, they're just about to be delivered and be given a new covenant and forgiveness of sins. But just before the new covenant is announced, the description of the exile is given with the people of Israel trooping past Ramah and Rachel pictured as weeping for her dead children. Just like Rachel, you know, was effectively, as she was dying, was weeping over, as, as Benjamin is born, so the son of my sorrow, she calls him. And Jacob changes and says, no, 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 we're going to call him son of my right hand. But then in the same way, it's almost like the land is going, Israel is being taken out, the son of my sorrow. The, I'm, I'm dying and my children are being deported. And then, of course, Matthew's reading that and saying, oh, in the same way, Israel is at, at death's door. The nation is at, in desperation. The exile is, is, is taking place, but in the midst of that, here has come a son who is going to be the son of my right hand. He's going to be the son who, who restores, the, restores the, the purpose of God, and then and the people to God's purposes. And then there's this beautiful promise, and then after that, I'm going to make a new covenant with them, and I'm going to take away their sins. So again, if Jesus is Israel, that, that quotation of Rachel weeping for her children is really illuminating and enriching. But if he's not, it's like, You've just searched the Old Testament, for example, of a woman crying and gone, oh, that'll do, and stuck it in. And that's no good, because how is that? Do you see what I mean? That, that, otherwise, that's how you read it. Whereas if you say, no, Jesus is in the fact that the massacre of the innocents happened and Jesus goes into Egypt and back, he's living out Israel's story, then these citations are not just, it's not that you just that you get away with them. You think, oh, Matthew's trying to tell a much bigger story, even about these events that Jesus himself is not directly in control of as a, as a small boy. And I think the most, as I said, the most sticky one in some ways is the last one, that what is spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He should be called a Nazarene. But there's really important here, actually, it sounds like a tiny pedantic detail, but I do think it's important that it's the word prophets, not the word prophet. Normally when Matthew quotes, he says that what is spoken by the prophet might be singular because he's referring to a specific one. In this case, he refers to the prophets, plural, as if he's talking about a more general prophetic sense that this is going on. And I think that's quite important because it helps, instead of saying this is a quotation from one place, this is a general prophetic theme that I've drawn from many places. Now, obviously, there are various ways you could read that. Um, plays on words. The Nazirite means is the holy warrior, that he would be called a Nazirite, or that he would be called a Netzer, a branch. Is that what's going on here? Nazareth, of course, as a town, is just simply a despised, poor and backward place. And so some interpreters said, well, it never said he was going to be from the town of Nazareth, but it did say plenty of times he would be from an area that was despised and marginal and grow up like a root out of dry ground. And what's more like that than Nazareth? Um, 
in a, as you know, many people, we always say, there's some place you want to snark in Britain, isn't there? When you say, it would be like saying, can anything good come from, but I won't. There's enough people in the room that that would be unwise. I think it once somebody did it at Stonely years back once and said it would be like saying, can anything good come from Grimsby? And there was this sort of big, you could hear the booing in the corner. He's just like, I didn't know. I just asked, asked people on the stage where they, should, where they would say, and then somebody said Grimsby. And then he paused and he said, Terry said Brighton, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. Um, a little in, New Frontiers in-joke there. Um, so it, it could refer to any, or, I mean, it's probably not going to refer to all of those things, but it could be any of those things. But it, it doesn't, I don't, I don't think, I'm not particularly concerned as to which it is, but the point being that Matthew is saying, no, this is, it was always going to be true that just as Israel is the, the nation that had nothing special or remarkable about her until God called her so in the same way, that the Messiah was going to be from an unremarkable place and would be called and exalted because God had chosen him, not because there was anything particularly majestic about him. And obviously that's a big Isaiah 53 type thing. So I think there's quite a lot of, even in the opening two chapters, which is where the difficulties are most concentrated, I think there's quite a lot of benefit to reading the book typologically. But there's quite a lot of things I've thrown out there. So any, any kind of comments or questions on any of that? It's going to be the first question of the day, somebody. Double whammy. Yes, sir, at the back. Um, Andrea, I might miss it. On the prophet one, which, which one would you go with? What, the Nazarene? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I probably, I mean, it, to me, Nazarite is the least likely. I think it's either, the, it's either he's deliberately doing a wordplay on branch or he's just going, everyone knows Nazareth is a backwards place, and that's what you'd expect if you'd read the prophets. Um, which is probably the one that connects most... I mean, I, I don't think it's impossible to decide, but if I was... I would probably preach you on it. I might actually throw both of them out there and say, it could be this, because the word branch is, you know, it sounds very like that word. It could be that the town of Nazareth is just known for being a bit of a, uh, you know, sort of... Well, a sort of backwards Alabama kind of equivalent, isn't it? Or because then you avoid offending northerners or, you know, yokels. Um, so, not that we have any of those in this room. Um, uh, Johnny. With Amos and Asaph, are you saying he's making a play on words? Yes. It's meant, so it's meant to be the others, and they're expecting Amos. Yes. And he throws it in just to kind of trick him. Yeah. Well, I don't think to trick him in the sense that I don't think he's. I don't think people are going to go. Oh gosh, is that the in his original setting? Obviously, since then, people have been perplexed by it to the point, as I say, that translations would, would edit it out. But I think the idea that that Matthew. I think it would be a very strange manuscript change. So manuscript. Textual criticism is hard, but the general rule of thumb is that it, the more difficult reading is the better one, because it's very unlikely that a scribe would add a difficulty. It's much more likely a scribe would correct one. That somebody early on in the tradition goes, oh, he's, this is obviously some previous copyist made an error here. Amos wasn't king of Israel. Ammon was king, or king of Judah, rather. So let's just change it. So I think the original reading is likely to have been Amos. That's probably what Matthew wrote. And, a sub, and in some branches of the tradition that someone's corrected it, and people like the NIV have gone, that's just, just easier. But I think it's less likely to be what Matthew said. So I, yes, I think he's deliberately going, ah, oh, Amos, I can't remember. You know, so it's a, I think that's my best guess as to what's happening there. But we, you know, we'll ask him someday. Okay. One last thing on the genealogies, and I'm not going to go through this line by line, but I do, I mean... 
James B. John, if you haven't come across James, if you're on sort of Twitter or Substack or like any of those, subscribe to anything like that, James's stuff is just so interesting. I mean, he, he does these deep dive long threads on, uh, which are just sometimes so stimulating, illuminating. He, um, he, and he also podcasts with Lightheart and Alistair Roberts and others at Theopolis. He's just a very, very sharp guy and it often just comes with a really nice manner to him as well, just like really gentle kind of guy. But he has a really good thing on reconciling the genealogies, which I just love because again, it doesn't just zero out a problem. It gives us a lot of interesting food for thought to take the story in other directions. And basically what he's trying to do, so if you can see on the, the genealogy here, is undoubtedly a bit of a it's a bit, of a, a bit of a mess, right? If you just had Luke 3 and Matthew 1 and you put them next to each other, it's not just the occasional anomaly. There's whole sections of the genealogies that are completely different, but then it lands again on the same people. And in fact, that happens twice, which is why he structured it like this. So obviously you've got Abraham down to David is the same, but then it goes down different branches, no pun intended, of the Davidic line, so through the Solomonic and the Nathan line, but then they disappear for generations, multiple generations, they're on very different trajectories, and then they join up again at Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, but then they go out again, and then they come back again and align up at, at, well, I assume, Mathan and Mathat to the same person, um, and then is if Jacob and Heli, very plausibly, and then obviously Joseph. So at the very least, you have Joseph. Now, what sometimes interpreters have gone, it's Mary's family line, but a, that's not what either of them say. They both explicitly say Joseph. And B, that doesn't solve the previous bubble. So it, it, it's, it's not the Mary solution, as it's sometimes called. It just doesn't really... Well, it might be right, although personally I don't think it is for the, for the bottom one, but it doesn't help us at all with the previous one. So it's a significant problem when it comes to reconciling the Gospels, if that's what you want to do, which obviously I do, because I think it's all true. And so I want to at least have a working idea. How, why is this going on? And so James has got a, a, a really interesting... Leveret marriage is, is the, uh, I think, the, the standard way of resolving it at the Joseph, Joseph level. That is the, the custom which you find a lot in the Old Testament of the father, the father of the child dies and then the, the brother has to then effectively adopt the child as, the, as his own and marry the wife, which is obviously what happens in the story of Judah. And that's actually how Judah and Tamar story starts. Um, which is why the, the brothers get struck down by the Lord for failing to fulfill their obligations. So it's a common practice and still is in parts of the world. And it's obviously something that was big in Luke chapter 3. There's, I think, three leveret marriages, including Herod's, taking place in Luke 3. So I think Luke is very interested in the idea. And that, to me, makes it quite plausible that the reason why Joseph has two fathers is because he did have two fathers. He had a biological father and he had an adopted father. And that's normal in that culture and is a big part of the story of Luke 3. But what James does is to go, I think the same thing may well have happened at the period of, around the period of the exile with Josiah and his boys. And so he, he, his proposal, as you can see, is that actually you have effectively, you know, Jehoiachin is adopted by Josiah um, and therefore that effectively Josiah has four sons, not three, he has three biological sons, but then adopts Jehoiachin. So Jehoiachin in that sense is, is an adopted brother of rather than a son of Jehoiakim, which helps with various other problems about the judgment upon Jehoiakim and why he wasn't supposed to have any offspring. Because um, if that is true, then Jehoiachin is not, or Jeconiah, as he's sometimes called, is not the son of Jehoiakim, his adopted brother, and therefore the line continues through him, which I think is very plausible um, and if Shealtiel is adopted by Jehoiachin while in exile, then it makes sense of how the two bubbles both happen. 
Some of you are not particularly excited by this, and that's fine. But for those of us who go, that is one of the major textual niggles I've had. You may well have read on this anyway. Um, but I think it really helps. And then when you come down to the Joseph, you know, period just of Joseph's, you, know, you often see this, don't you, on these apologetics websites or you know, debate with Muslims. And they're like, so who was Joseph's grandfather? You know, that, those kind, or Jesus' grandfather, those sort of questions. But the theory James works with is that Eliezer, um, who is Joseph's great-grandfather, relocates to Nazareth from Bethlehem, dies, and then his brother Levi raises the family, which is why you then compared with the, the leveret marriages in Luke 3 I just mentioned. And that the reason why they've told them differently is because Luke is trying to say the Messiah has humble origins, and Matthew's trying to say the Messiah has royal origins. So they've traced those, the leveret marriages in different ways to achieve their broader purpose. Some of you, just, I, can, I can just sense, there's just not a huge amount of energy for this in the room, and that's absolutely fine. But for one or two of you, you might nerd out on it and might enjoy it. Has anybody come across James's theory before? Tim? Yeah, one, oh, actually about five, okay. And the people who have, it doesn't especially surprise me that you're the ones who have. But take that as a compliment, Luke and David. Okay, uh, let's, um, let's make, make things a little bit more sort of practical and physical and, and I was walking to the loo and I overheard somebody say just now I am so here for sapientialism and I was like wow that is a, what was it he said Rich really? or maybe it was like I'm feeling very sapiential this morning or something like that I thought let's let's get to that later um I want to talk for a bit about a, a, a physical reading so that was the typology done for now um we'll talk about a physical reading of Matthew and some of this is, you know, I'm afraid I, I hinted yesterday that, there would, uh, that a, another book of mine would make an appearance, which it will. But actually, I've found, Matthew is uh, perhaps more than the other Gospels, but certainly in his own right, is very interested in using physical space and physical stuff to teach on the kingdom and the nature of Jesus' ministry. And there's a whole lot of ways in which that's true. And the one that is most um, unique to Matthew, because obviously Jesus does it himself all the time. Before, so let's not reopen the, is it Jesus or Matthew can of worms thing, but I mean, it's both. But Jesus obviously teaches with stuff all the time, and we will come back to that. But Matthew, I think, does, does more than simply report lots of physical things Jesus does and teaches with. Matthew particularly tra- tells his story using, a, almost as if there is a, a literal dimension to heaven as in sky and earth as in ground, and that Jesus' journey is intended to tell us a story using the physical element, heaven and earth, more physically than we're accustomed to thinking of them. And this is a case that I can't believe I didn't wave around, Nat called me out on it, for not waving around Jonathan Pennington's book yesterday, which we are going to talk about a bunch later, The Sermon on the Mount and, and Human Flourishing. I left it behind. It is fabulously helpful um, on The Sermon on the Mount and others. But Jonathan Pennington, I think his PhD work was on the, the, the nature of heaven and earth language in Matthew. And his case is effectively is that we are inclined to think that earth is the realm of now and heaven is the future where God lives. But that actually for Matthew, and, and therefore he says kingdom of heaven because he's trying to avoid saying kingdom of God. And it's just a reverent Jewish way of avoiding saying God. And Penny says, I don't, I don't think that's true. I actually think Matthew is particularly interested in the idea that earth is... Earth is down here and heaven is actually up there. And then he is, he's using the geography of the cosmos to tell us a story about what Jesus is doing. And so this is a graphic that wasn't made by me, um, by a guy called Chris Bora. But it's, I just find it quite interesting as a way of telling the story just using topography for a moment. And then I'll do my own version of it on the following page. Um, but so you start, you know, Earth represents where human, human beings are, blindness, 
inability to see what the kingdom is. Um, and Matthew starts there. You start with the wilderness or the valley of the Babylonian exile. Um, Jesus is taken up a very high mountain, but then offered the kingdoms of the world, but then to be effectively thrown down to the ground again. But then he goes up the mountain in chapter 5, verse 1. He climbs up the mountain and he issues, obviously, not, not just the Mount Sinai sense, but he is actually going up. He's almost nearer the heavens as he issues the manifesto for the kingdom of heaven um, and is obviously prayed the central prayer at that point, we'll come back to this obviously, is on earth as in heaven. So the idea that I'm, 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 as I'm standing up on this mountainside teaching you, I'm actually wanting to bring heaven to earth using physical space as a means of communicating that idea. So clearly heaven is the realm of God and earth is where you are, but I'm doing that almost topographically in where I'm standing and I'm trying, as I'm in the valley or the wilderness, I'm communicating this is the fight with sin and then I'm ascending the mountain saying this is the way heaven is going to come to earth by people living the kingdom in this way. Then he goes back down the mountain um, and then commissions people in, in mission and then goes down into the valley of parables. Effectively, this is, although the parables, of course, are about the kingdom, they are mostly got a very sort of dark undertone to them. People are not going to see, they're not going to believe, they're not going to understand. In fact, the Isaiah quote indicates, I'm telling the parables so that they won't see or understand. Sort of, again, down. Um, but then he goes back up and effectively gathering the church then, effect, and then goes up on Matthew 24 and you have the promise effectively about the coming of the future kingdom which again is on the mountain and then he comes down goes outside the city which is where he is killed and then of course at the very end of the gospel appears on a, on a mountain um, and says all authority is given now go so in, in a sense that the sort of the, the rhythms of going down into valleys and, and now I, I personally think that's a slightly flat way of looking at it because I think the seas are important and the mount, there are more mountains than this implies. That picture gives only two. But as you see on the next page, I think there's actually seven. But I, I like the graphic because I think it helps you see the, the basic idea of how the, the topographical, if you were literally to do a sort of, to show Jesus physical walking on a graph, how high, what his distance from ground level was, you might actually see something to the narrative of Matthew tracking how high he was at that particular point, which is a weird thought, but I think a fruitful one, as I will try and convince you on the next page. Um, now, if you've printed this out black and white, I have discovered to my own cost that it is almost illegibly dark. Down, um, so fortunately, because the, you know, the white comes out in black. But... Um, but this is, my, this is my version of it, which is why I'm afraid it looks a lot more clip arty and naff, but I hope also more theologically generative. Let's throw <laughs> and I'll take the insight over the clip art, but there we go. Um, so we have, so forget the clouds for a moment, we'll come back to those. Um, so we, you, you start in the Jordan Valley, and then he goes up onto a high mountain in the course of the temptations. And then he comes down and goes down by the sea. So obviously the sea and the valley are not the same. They don't represent the same thing in the cosmic geography of the, of the time. But, they do, but, but if you were looking through the Old Testament, you'd say wilderness is the time of temptation and testing, whereas the sea is actually more the place of death or the place of Gentiles. Like in, in the Old Testament cosmic symbolism, God lives up there, we live here, Gentiles live out there on the sea, in the ocean, where there are dragons and leviathans and all that sort of thing. And that, therefore, there's, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that something of that is intended to be communicated by a Jewish writer like Matthew. He comes down to the sea, which obviously is where some of these gentle encounters happen, a lot of fishing, all that stuff. Then he goes up on the mountain, Sermon on the Mount, comes back down to Galilee by the sea, and is there really between chapters 8 and 15. So a long period there, in the sort of around Galilee by the sea. And Galilee, that's just what it's known as. It's, it's the land, in fact, Isaiah just calls it the land of the sea. Um, Galilee of the Gentiles, that sort of, or the way of the sea, I think. 
uh, Isaiah calls it. It's, it's that sort of in, in the passage in Isaiah 9, which we often read at Christmas. He's made glorious the way of the sea, Galilee of the Gentiles. So this idea that it's like the sort of sea-like area, it's just, that's what it's well known for. A little, I suppose, maybe a bit like we might use the language of the Lake District, I suppose. That's what Cumbria is thought to be, especially in a place where there are lots of lakes. Even though most people who go there go for the mountains. Anyway, but I'm not sure what that's all about. Um, but so seven or eight chapters of that. Then up the mountain in the middle of that, um, and then back down again within, still in Galilee. Then up the mountain again in chapter 15. Then down to Caesarea Philippi, which is where the encounter with Peter happens. Then up the Mount of Transfiguration, down into the Jordan Valley, which is where the discussions about the, the difficult, that Herod's going to try and catch you out here. He's after you. What about divorce? A lot of the testing there that looks trying to catch him out. Then up to the Mount of Olives. Uh, obviously, the, in between, he's in Jerusalem. Up the Mount of Olives, down into the, into the grave of death. And then up, finally, on the seventh mountain. And so, no, I'm not going to go into the sort of, you know, what's that sort of seven mountains kingdom weird, weirdness? We're not going to go there. But there are seven mountains in Matthew in that sense. And he climbs up them, each representing a different thing. But a different aspect of who he is is revealed on each of these mountains. So in chapter 4 and verse, this is where the clouds come in. And so in chapter 4 and verse 8, it's Jesus' obedience and refusal to yield to the temptation of the devil that is displayed on the mountain. So he's up, the, the devil takes him up a very high mountain and says, hey, what about this? And he says, no, that's his obedience and his victory through obedience. Obviously, chapters 5 to 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, he's revealed as the authoritative teacher. That's the aspect of him because he's the new Moses, if you like. Chapter 14, the reason, that's a short one, which you could you know, blink and you miss it as you're reading through the gospel, but he does, he goes up on a mountain to pray. And that's a, so again, this, so it's his obedience, his teaching, and his prayer, which comes through in chapter 14, verse 23. And chapter 15, verse 29, is his merciful healing, which is performed on a mountain. Again, lots of people come to him and he, and he heals them. Chapter 17, the transfiguration, clearly it's his glory, his resplendence and majesty in the transfiguration. Chapter 24, it's his prophetic ministry as the, the one who's speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment that will come from a mountain. And then chapter 28, it's all authority has been given to me, go, I'm the all-powerful king of the world. So it doesn't quite fit, up, you know, the prophet-priest-king thing doesn't quite fit, although all three elements clearly do come through. But more than that, it's just various aspects of Jesus's character and excellence being revealed through the seven mountaintop encounters that he has in the Gospels. Any kind of comments or, I just think this is irrelevant, or, oh wow, that's nice, or clarifications or anything like that on space, time, earth, heaven, mountains, lakes, other. Luke. That looks very cool. I think it's... Um it's an interesting thing with like the place of high places. Yes. A really historic, important, yes. complicated thing for Israel. Yeah. But clearly, it's a place where people go to encounter God. Yeah. So that has to be in people's heads. Um, but just check, Matthew doesn't say it, and I don't know if it's just because I've got the song on the Mount of Crucifixion. Oh, yes. Matthew doesn't say it, he just no. places the skull. Yeah. Obviously, keep your seven, which would be much better than eight. Yes. <laughs> sort. That is another place of significant revelation. Yeah, I, so I, that's a. <laughs> I love it, love it. On the Mount of Crucifixion. Yeah, I can see that that basically would then go, that's seven and a half. Um, I mean, obviously, topographically, um, 
it, it, it is both, it is and is not a mountain, in the sense that, that you know, I think you'd, you'd walk up to Jerusalem's clearly on a mountain. And so in a sense, anything that's in the surroundings of Jerusalem is up. Um, and so if you were... If you were at Jericho and you wanted to walk to Golgotha, you'd be going uphill, net, right? You'd have some ups and downs, but primarily uphill. So in that sense, it is the Mount of Crucifixion. And obviously the, the symbolism there is the idea that the, what Jesus is killed on Mount Moriah, which is you know, where Abraham offered up Isaac, which he, which he is. But I think it's clearly down from the perspective of where Golgotha is relative to the city. He comes out of the city and sort of outside and you'd be down. He's not in the valley. Um, he's not in the Kidron Valley or the the Valley of Hinnom, but it's sort of on the, su- on the side, it's like halfway down. So we call it an even seven and a half. <laughs> um, but I think, but symbolically, it's clearly down and out. It, it's not sort of up moment of, of glory, but I, and he is going down to his death and then down into the grave itself. Um, so I, in a way, I think those are both true, um, as much as that sounds a bit squishy. And is it written in a way that uh, the Jewish reader would go, ah, this is now more significant or more um, drawn to, to application than that, or the woe is in the blessings, and that's sort of like, would they read it like that because of their understanding of life? Uh, I think some of them, yeah, I think that's a good question. I think some they would, it's, again, it's always very difficult to say what would a Jew have known, because you're generalizing about... I think there are very learned Jews who would have written at this level or studied at this level of intricacy who would go, yeah, of course. But an awful lot of other people would go, no, just, I'm not saying that. Um, and that's fine. But I think there would be some where it was very clear. So the idea that you were going up, on, going up the Mount of Transfiguration and probably going up the Mount on the Sermon on the Mount and the High Mountain at the end, you would go, yeah, these are significant mountaintop moments. Whereas I think there might be other bits like we was, where in chapter 14, when it says he went up on a mountain to pray, most of us would probably read that and say, he just wanted somewhere quiet. Now, that's all that's going on. And so I think we, we'd always, it's only when you see them all like this, which I don't think any more than, I don't think Jewish people might, would notice any more than we would, perhaps, that there's a sort of, I'm not, I'm not trying to get too much into the number seven here, right? As if that's somehow Matthew structured the whole thing around sevens, and you could get a bit over clever. Um, but, I, but I do think there happen to be seven, or if Luke's to be believed, seven and a half. But I think that, I think that you'd, it's more that space means something for Matthew, so that the, when he goes up, there is something about representing something of heaven. So he's communing, he's fellowshipping with heaven, he's bringing down healing from heaven, he's bringing teaching from heaven, that that's something represented, whereas when he's down in the valley, he's fighting sin and death and demons, and you know what I mean? So I think there is something to the topography of the book that is intentional and that people would notice, but whether they'd spot seven different phases, I don't know. And comparatively to the other Gospels, I mean, it's different. Yes, I think so. And, and, and the thing that draws our attention to that is Matthew's very, Matthew uses the word heaven a lot more than the other Gospels. In fact, if it wasn't for, it wasn't for Matthew, that's I mean, another, back to Liz's question, what would we lose if we didn't have Matthew? I wonder if the centrality even of heaven in Christian discourse would be, much, much smaller were it not for, not for Matthew. So John obviously doesn't, I mean, he does talk about, I'm the one who came down from heaven, but his, you know, what the power of the kingdom in life now, John's language for that is eternal life, isn't it? He doesn't really talk about heaven in that way much at all. Matthew does all the time, partly because of his phrase kingdom of heaven. So I think that's what's drawing out this insight is scholars going, is the heaven earth thing actually understood as we've sometimes assumed 
Or is he actually being literally a bit more spatial about his understanding of what's happening? So he's deliberately going up a mountain as, as if he's representing in where he's standing, this is heaven coming to earth in that sense. Um, yeah. Interestingly, just going back to your five teaching blocks. Bits. Yeah. From the first slide, only one of those is up the mountain. Yeah. The other four are in the valleys. Yeah. Is there any kind of, is that a sense of in the valley looking up the mountain, as it were, if you follow this teaching? Is there any correlation? Or just a... Yeah, I, I, I do think that there is something unique. And that's of the five blocks, I think there is something unique and uh, that takes primacy to the Sermon on the Mount. I think the Sermon on the Mount is, there, it, it's, but in its length, in its centrality to Matthew's vision of the kingdom, I think even to just Jesus's ethical vision, and that in, that's also the mosaic. So, if you, so we're overlaying various ways of looking at the book here, aren't we? And in the end, you, you have to decide which ones you find most fruitful as you're thinking through the book or wanting to speak on it or whatever. But I think if you overlay the typology, you would say that, that is the bit where Israel is up the mountain. But just you'd say the Old Testament's the same, that Israel is going up and down mountains in, the, in a sense. There's Mount Sinai, but then there's Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and then there's whatever, up Mount Zion. And so in the same way, Jesus is doing that because this is also telling the story of Israel. Um, but yes, I think the Sermon on the Mount is, is more, this is the, the Sinai moment in the gospel. Um, so it's probably more important in that sense. Dave? Do you think there's any, do you think Matthew's drawing any significance with the people that are accompanying Jesus on the mountain each time? Because it's almost different on each occasion. You know, you've got, you know, the devil. The devil was the first one, and then you've got a large crowd of teachers. Yeah. You've got just him and the father. You've got a smaller group of disciples. You've got the kind of the broader context of disciples, and then the commission to kind of go the whole world. world. Never noticed it. I really like that. Yeah, I, I do. I, I think that's a really interesting thought. I mean, I don't know what where what where you'd go in terms of the the outcome of that, but I like. But yes, you're right. In in fact. Arguably, none of those seven. I suppose the second and the fourth ones have got large crowds, but other than that, the, each one of them is, has got a different group of supporting cast. Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you, Dave. That's very good. Yeah, I like this. Um, okay. Sorry. Second bit of shameless self-promotion. Matthew and things. But um, I, th- I just, a lot, I just realized, because I wrote this book on God and things, and f- was really struck by how much of this stuff there is boiled down into Matthew. Um, and even just, I didn't do the front cover, and I didn't do the front cover mindfully, mindful of teaching on this subject, but it really struck me of how many of the predominant things, physical stuff, that Jesus uses to teach are concentrated in Matthew's Gospels specifically. Um, and so starting, you can start at the top. This, you know, he sends rain on the just and the unjust as a picture of the grace of God, the idea of grace-like rain, where if you want to... I mean, obviously, we don't really think about rain as a gift of grace because in Britain, it's the opposite problem. We're going, we're trying to get avoid rain. And some of us looked outside yesterday and were like, oh, no. And we laughed at Ollie for being soaked when he walked in and all that sort of stuff because we're looking for the sun. But if this afternoon, which looks like it will be, we walk up to Blackheath, should have 20 degrees and sunny. That's what it was claiming earlier. If that happens, we're just like, oh, it's just so... Just, there's something of the way that British people step outside and go, oh, the sunshine, and realizing that this, the same sun shines on both the righteous and the unrighteous and the fact that we are here on a theology conference studying the word and lost in wonder, love and praise and somebody else 
is walking up the same street having just done a deal in the city that the collateral damage of which might be to put many people out of work or to extort money from somebody else. Not that anybody who lives in the city would ever do that, or that most people do, quickly get myself out of trouble here, you know what I mean? But also the things people might be doing, people might go, yeah, I've just, I've, I've just um, downloaded child pornography and I'm walking home to see my family. And the sun is shining on him as it's shining on us on the way up the street. And it's weird, but, that, but that, for, that's Jesus' application. It's like, just look at, the, look at the way the rain and the sun come to both of those people, and you will see your heavenly Father is like that. Now, it's not to say that this guy's going to get away with it, but it is to say that actually he is the kind of God who showers the grace of the rain or the sun, depending on which... And obviously Jesus uses both there. He makes his sun shine on the just and the unjust. And the rain... That's why, and I, I, I wrote about this in the book, but I was just, my commute when I drive up here from where I live in Eastbourne, I just drive through this just spectacular, some of you came that way, it's like where Marcellus and the others live, in sort of middle of the Sussex Weald, and you're just driving through breathtaking, like just this time of year, just rhododendron bushes everywhere, just green and stunningly beautiful, and everywhere's advertising cherries and logs and peaches, and you're just like, this is just an amazing place to live, what a drive, and as you're driving through, you're thinking the only reason it looks like this is because... God has caused it to rain and sunshine in this bit of the country, and that's why it's more beautiful here than it would be somewhere where it was drier. It's not, but, but the people here might be less godly than those people, but God's just like that. And just every time you look at the weather, you think there is a communicating the grace of God. I'm going to give this to you, regardless of how deserving or not you might seem to be. And obviously we would call it now common grace, but I like to think of it as grace like rain. It just falls on everybody. And then there's special grace which comes to some and not others. But it's just a, a Jesus draws on that very early on in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a pig uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in, in a, and it's a particularly, he's a puzzling pig and we might come back to him later because it is a very confusing, um, even just ex- what exactly, don't throw your pearls before swine, don't give, don't give what's holy to the dogs. Or, and if you give your pearls before swine, they might come and trample you. And you just go, sorry, you... <laughs> Again, could we just get some clarity? Like, who are the pigs and what, what are they doing and trampling you? What's that all about? And I, I'm, I don't claim to have great answers to all of those questions. But uh, the idea of the pig as the Gentile. Um, but again, Jesus, very vivid teaching language like that. Consider the lilies of the field, the flowers. And again, I, I wrote a section on this of just meditating on different kinds of flowers and what they reveal about the nature of the kingdom and about how incredibly transient some of them are and about how they blossom for three or four days and then they just fade away and you say yeah okay the kingdom is there's like that you can you can trust your father that beauty is coming even if it doesn't seem to last as long as you hoped and then there are other flowers that stay there dormant under the ground all year and you don't notice them and then they pop out for a few days like bluebells just carpet in the woods they're there all the time and you don't know that they are and then in early may where i live suddenly the whole forest goes blue for about four weeks and then it goes back to being brown and green for the next 11 months. And it's just like they're always there. God is always working like that. So your father is always doing things like that. Just consider the flowers. Just consider the kinds of flowers there are. Consider how they work. Consider the dandelion, which at it, you know, it sort of looks so fragile and like a puffball. And you pull it out and you blow it. And children do. And the breath of a three-year-old can destroy this thing. And that's what your father, you, 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 the world is like this. You, your life is like this. It's incredibly fragile. You can be blown out in a moment, but when you do experience suffering and scattering, what you find is that those things can drift off into the air, take root, and then the dandelion becomes so robust and strong, this sort of yellow kind of, you know, kind of yellow beast that get into your garden. You go, 
They are called dents de lion. That's why, you know, as in lion's teeth, they're just so hard to get out because they're so strong. And what happens is Christians are. The kingdom is a place where people are fragile. They die. Their life is scattered to the winds and they, in resurrection, become like lion's teeth. Just, just consider the flowers. Just look at the flowers and can you not trust that the heavenly father who made all of those and clothed them like this will also clothe you, O ye of little faith. It's Jesus just preaching on the way the world is. And it's not, I don't think it's just, again, it's like the, the thing we said yesterday about it's not just that Jesus lives like this because David did, it's that David lived like that because Jesus does. And I think in the same way, creation, it's not just that Jesus is going, oh, have you ever noticed this fascinating point about lilies? It's like lilies are there to reveal that that's what God is like. Rain is there to reveal that that's what God is. He's the kind of God who would rain on anybody. Even pigs are there to reveal what Gentiles are like. I had a bacon roll this morning, so it's very fresh in my mind. Um, but my, my favorite line in the book is that in Christ, pigs become bacon. I, just, I, lo- I loved saying it. I still like saying it. Just that actually the, the filthy outsider, smelly creatures wallowing in the mire in death get, get put to death and then become the most fragrant, aromatic, oh my goodness, I must come and eat some of that stuff just as a result of having died. It's just, it goes from the smell, you know what I mean? Pigs are at the opposite end of the smell spectrum, depending on whether they're dead or alive. And so are you, because but when you're alive, you stink. But when you die in Christ and rise to new life, you become the fragrance of life. It's just beautiful. And these things are like that because Jesus has made the world in that way and teaches those kind of things. Let's go to Matthew 5.13, shall we? Because this one's, this one's got more, more to it. Sorry, I'm rattling through things. I'm maybe rather arrogantly assuming that some of us have read the book and therefore know what I'm talking about. But if not, some of you are going, what the what? And you, if you are, um, copies are available. But, <laughs> um, it, it, but this is a, this is, it's just, it's more the method. It's just, I find I, there's just so much of this in Scripture that creation preaches. And, uh, and there's just a lot of great examples. But let's go to Matthew 5.13, um, some of the most famous things in, in the Gospel of Matthew or in, and indeed in the Bible. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, we've, how many of us have preached a sermon on Jesus as salt of the earth or light of the world at some point in our ministry or lives? Yeah, so that's like over a third, maybe pushing half the room. So it's really central text. One of those passages, I'm not, I'm not surprised. I've been surprised if many of us hadn't. But it's really difficult because what salt means is so multi-sided, even in the gospel, even in on here. Did I just cut out just then? Yeah. I did, didn't I? I wonder what that was. About. Uh, this is why I'd, I'll do the Matthew bit and I won't do the tech bit, sorry. Um, <laughs> But what's going on with the imagery of salt? Because many of it, we'd use it, it's like, it's flavoring. And so our job on the earth is to make the world taste better. And then you have to get into, all, so what, what do you mean by that? Like what, when it, you are the salt of the earth, but then well, if it loses its saltiness, you go, that, that's a bit of a strange comment because salt, I mean, literally speaking, salt doesn't lose its flavor. You, can't, you never put salt on anything that doesn't taste of salt. That's not quite what happens. So what, that's obviously not what he means. What does he mean? And then people go, no, it's not really about flavoring because salt is 
a preservative. It's there to function like an ancient version of a fridge. So you have salt in order to preserve, as of course people did, for, to preserve meat for longer. So they cure it, they smoke it like f- smoke fish. So it stops things going off. That's what the church's role is. It's to be a preservative in the world, not to flavor the world. And by the way, what would flavoring the world really mean anyway? So no, it's a preservative. And then other people say, well, but that's not what salt meant in the Old Testament. In fact, salt in the Old Testament was offered with sacrifices. And Jesus, in, in, in a particularly obscure passage of Mark, talks about things being salted with fire. I think, what's that? Are we now adding salt to the frying pan and then frying? I mean, what, what do you mean? You're salted with fire? And then, of course, other imagery in the Old Testament talks about salt being used to destroy. And so, you know, they, they came in, they conquered the city, and they sowed it with salt. As in, they put salt all over the land to stop it from growing any crops. So what, we, what is this image? Is it meant to destroy things? Is it meant to preserve things? Is it meant to flavor things? Is it meant to be offered with sacrifice? Is it meant to fertilize things and help them grow? And of course, I think the answer is, yeah. It's meant to do all of those things. And the church is, in that sense, a flavor, a, a flavor in the world. It's there to, to draw out the best things that there are that God has made in the world and to draw them out and to make them taste better. And it's also there to preserve a world that will otherwise go rotten. And it's also there to act as a judge and as a judgment over broken, fallen things in the world and to speak words of judgment. And it's also there to fertilize the good things and cause them to grow. And it's also there to be offered up in sacrifice on behalf of the world. I think all five of those things are in there because those five things are all things that salt could mean in the ancient world and in the Old Testament. But it takes some digging to get them. And if you're not careful, you play them off against each other and end up overstating one element and not another. But this is in some of the most famous verses in the New Testament. There's just so much more there because of the way that these things work. And Matthew seems to delight in it, and Jesus clearly does. The idea that these images have just got a lot of power, and that sometimes Jesus doesn't spell it all out, partly because I think he wants people to think about it and go, okay, you are the salt of the earth. That's the first thing Jesus says of the church in Matthew's gospel. Just, you know, there's nine Beatitudes, not eight, as we'll come back to. There's nine Beatitudes, and then you are. Let's start there. This is who you are, and then I'll tell you what you should do, but this is who you are. And the first thing he says is, you're the salt of the earth. That's got to have some, I want to spend some time thinking about what he meant by that. And he may well have meant all five of those things and possibly even others. Fish. Obviously, fish are big in the Gospels, um, which they would be if you're talking about a Galilean teacher gathering around Galilean fishermen. Um, And then you've got a, a, a bunch of others as well. Salt and light, city versus the stars sand, seed, all sorts of images like that, lamps, yeast, crops, sheep, coins, treasure, nets, pearls, stones, figs, sunshine, rocks, vines, water, lots and lots of things that Jesus is continually drawing on and going, look at how all of these things reveal the life of the kingdom. Bread, obviously, take and eat. This is my body. We'll come back to bread, as I said, uh, in a moment. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruits. Um, So we've got trees for good and bad. And then look at the birds of the air and just the carefreeness of birds as they fly. And So again, God's going to feed every one of those and that's what you are to be like as well. Um, I can't remember. Are we breaking at 11 or 10.30? 11. 11. Okay, I'm glad. You're right back there, Neil. It seems that it was me being an idiot rather than anything back there. But you're still policing it. That's good. Yeah, all right. (laughs) You take your time. <laughs> um, so lots of 
there are a lot of things. <laughs> Maybe I'll just say that, say it no more strongly than that, but there's just riches in a lot of these things. Um, and Jesus, Jesus I, it, and part of it is just is good pedagogy, isn't it? It's, Jesus is showing us that when you take physical things that people know and you talk about them to reveal truths of the kingdom, that you, people find it more easy to remember. And so I'm a big one for object lessons and physical things to go, look at this thing, that's what the kingdom is like. Um, I, I learned to preach in kids' club, and I do it a lot, um, and, and many of us do. But it's not just a methodological point. It's also a way of teaching us how to read creation and say, you really do have, you know, I mean, creation is preaching. It's not enough. You need the, you know, I, I'm quite a sort of Psalm 19 guy like this, you know, that you, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, but then you also do need the law of the Lord revives the soul and makes wise the simple. So you, the creation on its own preaches and says, look at the kind of God there must be, but you also need the word to say, and this is what it means, and this is how to understand what God has done, but the two do preach together. Um, it's no good just having the creation. You know, go, oh, yeah, you're getting very quickly into nature worship there. But if, that, if you only go, just no, we only do the word, we, you, actually people's imagination gets narrowed because they don't see how much of the word is drawing from the rest of the world to say actually everything God has made is pointing to what God, who God is and what he's done. Um, I just I find that with the, the, the sun. It's such an obvious example, isn't it? But it's the idea of the sun as being that created by God to give us, you know, and you've got to be, you've got to be careful because the Bible is so, so careful not to worship the sun, um, but at the same time say this, this idea of this primacy, this, the light and the heat, the idea that even when you can't see it, it's still there providing light and life for everything on earth. And in fact, the very things that stop you from seeing it are themselves generated by the sun. So as in even the clouds are only there because the sun has generated the cycles that make the clouds move. And even when it goes dark, that is because you're moving away from, you, you're turning yourself away from the light of God, not because the light isn't there. And all these, it's just such a beautiful image. But obviously the Bible doesn't go to town too much on that one because sun worship was quite a thing back then. Um, and I always often say to Rachel, like, living around here, I can see why. That's the only kind of idolatry I think I would have been tempted to. I would never have been a, let's worship a wooden statue. But I think when you live in Northern Europe and you've been through the greyness of our March as well, this right? It was really grey, really late. And then somewhere around mid-May, you, you walk outside, it's like, I can take off my jumper and my coat. It's like, ah, I can imagine why people would fall to the ground and bow in worship before this thing. And go, yeah, this is an amazing gift, but it just displays so much of who and what God is. And you trace that through the scripture. So there's a lot of things in the Bible and they illuminate. And in Matthew in particular, uh, a very, very strong emphasis. So of all of those, I could, probably could have written a whole book of 30 chapters on things just from Matthew. Because there's so many of them that are, are meaningful in that way. But let me dive a little bit deeper into... Any questions on that, on the uh, things I've thrown out there about whatever, whatever it was, pigs or salt or something that you're going, what? Or any other comments? Yeah. Yes. 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 Absolutely. And that's that's. I suppose the sacrificial language I'm drawing is that. Is, yes. Is that covenant language? Um, and I mean, you could draw. I suppose even this um, scarcity was another was that you're alluding to is a factor too because that's. There's a lot of people who say that's the origins of our word salary. 
is the idea that people were paid in salt because it was a valuable commodity, and that's another angle on it. So, yeah, no, that's good. Rich? There's an extent to which Jesus is saying something about the kind of the original mandate on us, the kind of the city project to extend and expand the cultivation of the garden. So even in these simple things, mm. Jesus is teaching, uh, this is always the plan, this is always what was in you, to extend my peace and shalom and my kingdom throughout the world. And uh, one of the ways you'll see that is in a subjugation of things like seeds and uh, trees and the, that's yeah, I think so. I think I think no, 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 you're wrong, Richard. no he's not wrong. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I probably don't. I, I'm trying. I can't see that there's a this is now part of a creational mandate to renew all things from the fact that he's using these things. But I think that the, it's almost, again, more the other way round. The idea that God has made a world that is so filled with ordinary, like that plant life and animal life form such a big part of the Bible is, is part of trying to help us see, again, you guys were given this mandate to care for everything in it, and you're always to be thinking about the whole of it, and, and probably you do become spiritually impoverished as your life becomes more concreted and bricked up and less, of a, less able, able to see a lot of what's going on in the world. Now, that could be the... I mean, you live in Poole, so you're, you're doing well here. Um, and I'm, you know, I live in Eastbourne and drive through the countryside all the time. So I don't want to be an overplay the sort of country bumpkins are better kind of card. Um, <laughs> although I suppose maybe. Um, but, the, but actually, the, there is something spiritually impoverishing about only seeing some elements of what God has made. And, that, that, and that's not to say we should all be travelers all the time. But I do think there are things that you, you experience of God when you see the sea or trees or that you find harder to perceive when you're surrounded by man-made stuff. And I think, I've, I've, yeah, I've read Joseph Minich's book, Bulwarks of Unbelief, which has come out this year. He talks a little bit about this, about even the extent to which our that the more our world is mediated through human-made things, technology, screens, buildings, cars, the, the more likely it seems to human beings that God is not needed. Because the givenness of things, and that's a Marilyn Robinson term, but the givenness of things is just not part of our daily experience. Everything you see is mediated through human agency. So it's very difficult to see the transcendence of God. And so in a sense, there is a there is a creation mandate built into the amount that Jesus and God in Scripture talks about created things. I probably wouldn't want to overdo it and go, therefore, man-made things are somehow ungodly or anything, because he also talks about men building their houses on this versus that. So, he's, you know, what I mean? construction projects are in there too. But I, I, I do think that the sort of, yeah, the, cre the amount of creation there is in the Bible is very, a very important part of God's vision for people and how we flourish. So if you do live in the middle of a city, if, if you're in lockdown in this part of London, you were not only impoverished by not being able to move, you, ju you just didn't really see created stuff other than humans for three or four months. And I just don't think that's good for the soul. I think a lot of people found that was bad for their mental health, all that sort of stuff, which you would think it would be because of the way God has made the world. So love cities too, but you know what I mean? It's just, there was a lot in there. Anyway, bread, okay? I feel on... Slightly safer ground than ad-libbing my way through. Um, so I talked about the, the Matthew 13 to 16 is very... You're still all laughing at this. You guys are meanies. <laughs> it's a very long... 
I've tried to rescue you from your question, Rich. Um, successfully or not, we will. Um, I said before, Matthew 13 to 16 is very bready. Um, and so we'll, we'll take some examples the whole way through, from seeds to leaven to wheat to bread to the crumbs. Okay, so I just, I hope this is interesting, but even if it's only interesting, I hope it will just keep your attention, but I do think there's significance even in the way Matthew's ordered it. Again, you don't get this to the same degree in the other Gospels. You get lots about bread there too, but Matthew is almost like a book of bread in the middle of, uh, in the, middle of the Gospel. A farmer went out to sow his seed. Some fell here, some fell here, some fell there. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which is slightly different from yeast. Leaven is the yeasted bit of dough rather than the, the fungus itself. Um, most of the time, it doesn't really matter. That a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. So flour is another thing we could have drawn out until it was all leaven. So Jesus is already talking a lot about the kingdom through seeds that grow into flour, seeds that grow into wheat that grows, turns into flour that turns into bread. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So it's not just that the kingdom teachings like leaven that has the capacity to shape and influence everything and spread throughout the whole, but so does bad teaching. So good teaching is like leaven. And she throw out, and those of us, most of us in some ways involved in teaching the church, whether we preach publicly a lot or not, and we're out there, we're, we're leavening people's lives. And you're throwing it in, and we always say things like this, don't we? But then people don't remember it, and it doesn't matter that they don't remember it. You won't remember most of this, and that doesn't bother me in the slightest, because it's leavening your life and mine as we're talking about it. And it's bearing, it's gradually, but the converse is, so does the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The same image used for good and bad teaching. Because that's what ideas do. That's what teaching does. That's what doctrine does. It leavens and it can spread like a fungus. And Paul is like, this is why you've got to get this man out of the church. Because a little leaven, a little mold spreads through the whole cheese. But leaven specifically, it just pollutes the entire thing. But it also causes it to rise. So it's both a fungus and a rising agent at the same time. But that's the way Jesus likes to play with things and get us to think about the nature of good and bad teaching. And um, yeah, it's my dad sitting over there, and he introduced me to uh, Judson Cornwall like 30 years ago, and just got me into thinking about God and preaching and so on for the first time. But he was, he was quite big on this theme. He was like, hungry sheep will eat anything. That if, if people are not given stuff that is leavened with the good word, they will, they'll eat something. They'll, they, and obviously now, that's much more true than it was because there's so much content online that's, that's not edifying. And it's like, people need leavened meals. So make sure you're leavening them with good doctrine. It's just, um, oh, and then, but then, of course, the disciples don't get it, which is one of my favorite rebukes. Oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact you have no bread? Don't you yet understand? I literally, you've just been there when I made enough bread for 5,000 people from a lunchbox. And then as if you didn't get that, I made it for 4,000 people out of another lunchbox. And you're still going, gosh, you must be talking about the fact we didn't remember to bring bread. How could you possibly have that as your problem at this point in time? And, you know, so yeah, leaven is used as the analogy of the kingdom. It's not literally bread. But he also is going to talk a lot about and do a lot of genuine, literal provision of miraculous bread. Then with wheat, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his, field, in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat 
Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. We know all these parables, but just notice the, the continuity of how the, the seed becomes, and then mixed mix with the leaven, um, and the wheat then turns into bread. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. I love that. Uh, my friend Glenn Packham has written a book on the sacrament, kind of on the sacraments, but it's called Blessed, Broken, Given, but just the pattern we see here, that Jesus blesses, breaks, gives, and obviously it happens here, it happens in the, in the Lord's Supper, but it also happens with our lives, that we are blessed, and that we, like he actually, are, are broken and then given to the world. And it's, it's just a nice image drawn from this text. Um, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they were all ate and were satisfied. And then, of course, the same thing happens again in chapter 15. He took the seven loaves and the fish. They took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And then the story about, uh, of the crumbs. So in between those two stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, we have another story about bread in which the Syrophoenician, the, the kind of, the is Jesus a racist story? Um, you know, because it sounds, and people, you do, there's plenty of people who would write articles about that now saying Jesus is a racist because of, look how he treats this woman. But actually, because we don't see the, I genuinely think it's just an anemic reading of the gospel to see it in anything like that way, because this is a story about who gets the bread sandwiched in between two stories about God providing a lot of bread. But the first story, 5,000, is 5,012 baskets is for Israel. And then the second story takes place in Gentile territory. Who was it that mentioned that yesterday? Because they do deserve a ripple for that. It was you. And he's now at the front row, knowing the ripple is coming. Can we give him a ripple? The point being, it's actually about where it happens. So it's, brought, it's, in, it's in Gentile territory, uh, which is much clearer in the Mark version. And then actually, then it's like 4,000 people and seven baskets left over. And so again, you have a sort of bread for the Jews story. And then you have a woman going, do I get bread as well? And he goes, well, what a, is it right to take the bread from the kids and give it to the dogs? And he goes, yeah, because the dogs can eat the crumbs as well. And he goes, great is your faith. That's just what I wanted to hear. And then immediately after provides bread for the Gentiles and the feeding of the 4,000, which I think it gives, us a, it gives us a double luck, as my wife would call it. You both have an, a good explanation of the faith of the Canaanite woman story, but you also have a good explanation as to why there's two feeding stories. Because one of them is very, the symbolism is very clearly Israel, even right down to the 12 baskets. Um, but if you were to give a number to Israel and the Gentiles, you'd give the number 12 to Israel and 70 to the Gentiles. And so I think the idea that you have 12 baskets and seven baskets is significant even there. But one is in Israel and one is in Gentile territory. And the combination is drawing this out. The woman is effectively the, the, the hinge between these two stories, saying, can I, as a, as a non-Jew, can I get the bread that comes from the Messiah as well? And he says, yes, great is your faith and then provides miraculous bread for the Gentiles as well. So she bridges, yeah, the Jewish 5,000 and the Gentile 4,000. Yes. Seven, seven, oh, the Gen- uh, so Genesis 11 and 12, or Genesis 10 and 12. So the 70 nations and the 12 tribes, I think is the sort of 12 and... Also, um, Did you say Roger? <laughs> As in Roger from, you know, Roger okay or that. Yeah, no, I know that's what it means. I just thought it was an amusing turn of phrase. It's just, it's <laughs> <laughs> Roger, Roger, over, over, all that, yeah. There is, also, uh, there is also a view that at the time of Jesus, that territory was called the land of the seven because of the seven clans that were driven out um, under Joshua. 
And the rabbis at that time said, well, they're all Gentiles over there. That must have been where they went. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Okay, no, I didn't. Is that in, from Mark or from Matthew? Um, uh, I hadn't come across that. In Matthew, it does say seven baskets. Yeah. Oh, no, I know the seven baskets. It's the, the seven cities thing. Extra biblical. Right. Okay, no, I had not come across that. That was fascinating. Um, so, yeah, this is, again, when we're back to things, we've obviously got dogs making an appearance. And we had dogs, you know, so it's not right to take the bread from the children and give it to the dogs. Yes, but the dogs eat the crumbs. And obviously, we were told in the Sermon on the Mount, don't give to dogs what is holy and cast your pearls before swine. And then, so it's just sort of left there you know, like a, just sort of, like Chekhov's gun, just sort of hanging, left in the background going, is that going to go off? And then 10 chapters later, we get this woman saying, yeah, but the dogs can, can't they? Because they do get access to the table with everybody else and eat alongside the children. Yes, they do. That's exactly right. So it's just a, the, the bread, seeing the whole, all these four chapters is brought together with, with a lot of bread, yeast, leaven, all those sorts of images. And it's just, it's really helpful when it comes to understanding the meaning of some of these particular passages, which can be some of the trickier ones in the gospel as well, I think. Okay, so I'm now going to do a whole book of mine, but this, um, this is one that you're less likely to have read, I expect, unless you have little children. But I just want to walk with me, okay? My name is Alex. I'm eight and a half, and I come from an African town in the Med. But most of this story is not about me. It's the tale of a boy who was born in a shed, the boy from the house of bread. I first heard of Jesus from Rufus at lunch. You see that guy over there teaching, he said. I saw where my brother was pointing and looked. They say he brought two children back from the dead, a widow's young son, an important man's daughter. They say he heals blindness and walks on the water. They say he was born when his mum wasn't wed in the town they call House of Bread. I stared at the teacher. He didn't look much, no rippling muscles, no crown on his head. So I started to listen to what he was saying. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. Then he told us some stories of scattering seeds and harvesting crops and pulling up weeds. He kept on describing the kingdom of heaven with stories of flour, of wheat and of leaven and feasting and everyone poor being fed. They all seemed to be about bread. Once around tea time, my brother and I were part of a crowd in a ravenous mood when Jesus' helper came over and asked, did you boys remember to bring any food? Just a fish sandwich, I said with a grin. Perfect, he said. So I gave him my tin. He took it to Jesus, who offered a prayer, then broke the bread loaves before starting to share. The food just kept coming. So much fish and bread, then it made an incredible edible spread with nobody hungry and 5,000 fed. I've never seen anything like it, I said. A man who can multiply bread. The trouble began a bit later that summer. They captured his cousin and cut off his head. They started to plot about how they could kill him. They couldn't get over the things Jesus said, like, I am the light in a world that's asleep, and I am the shepherd who dies for his sheep, and I am the saviour who raises the dead, and I am the life-giving bread. I didn't see Jesus again until the spring. Things were beginning to come to a head. The word on the streets of Jerusalem was that the priests and the leaders all wanted him dead. My dad was concerned. It didn't look pretty. Jesus had angered the local committee and thousands of pilgrims were filling the city for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I woke up that Friday. The morning was chilly as Dad told my brother to get out of bed. We have to get going right now, whispered Dad. They've captured the man from the House of Bread. He knew it was coming. He said not to fight. They all had a Passover supper last night. He said he'd be captured before it was light, but that in the end it would all be all right. He said not to fear, but to trust him instead. 
And he left them with wine and bread. We ran to the edge of the city in tears. Don't worry, they'll put him on trial, Dad said. But when we arrived, it was less like a trial and more like a mocking parade instead. They made Jesus dress in a bright purple gown and twisted together a prickly crown. Later, he carried his cross out of town, so weak that he couldn't stop falling down. I stared as a soldier in silver and red took Dad by the arm and pointed ahead. You carry his cross, he said. Dad had to carry the old rugged beam to the hill called the Skull. He couldn't refuse. Rufus and I kept ourselves out of sight as they hoisted the man they called King of the Jews. I looked at the man on the cross as he bled. The afternoon sky became darker like lead. He finally shouted and bowed his head. My mission is finished, he said. It felt like the end of the world. It was. We walked back in silence and went to bed. Saturday came and I cried all day long. They'd murdered the man who could multiply bread and the hope of the world was dead. I woke up on Sunday before it was morning. Some women were chattering out on the streets. They said they were heading for Jesus' grave. I decided to follow them all in bare feet. As Jerusalem's sunrise was piercing the gloom, the women arrived at the tomb. You probably know graves are closed off with stones, but this one was open. No body, no bones. How could this happen? The women all cried. Two shining strangers stood off to one side. Why look for life in a graveyard, they said. You're after the man from the house of bread? He's not here. He's risen, just like he said. Your king is alive, not dead. That week was a blur. The city was buzzing. The friends who had seen him were starting to preach. But I didn't see Jesus until two weeks later. He barbecued breakfast for us on the beach. I loved it. He made us my favorite dish, freshly baked rolls served with charcoal grilled fish. What happens now, master? Somebody said. He paused as he finished a mouthful of bread. Harvest, he answered. Go into my field and feed hungry people and see the sick healed. Tell all the world I'm alive and not dead and I will be with you wherever you tread. Now go and teach everyone all that I said and invite them for wine and bread. So that's what I did. I went home that summer, back to my town in the African Med. But the rest of my life wasn't really my own. It belonged to the boy who was born in a shed, who walked on the water and rose from the dead, the king from the house of bread. So it's weird. Thank you. It's just a very bready story. And I just, I think objects like that, I know this is obviously one and you can do the same with water and wine and salt and pigs and all the rest, but I just think it can be a good way of telling the story of the Gospels particularly. And and I know it's a kid's book, but I just think sometimes for adults, they go, oh yeah, there's a lot lot of different ways in which that's just the image runs all the way through. And I I just, methodologically, I think it, it can be a helpful tool as we're thinking about Matthew in particular, but you know, preaching scripture more generally. Any questions or comments on any of that? We're going to break in a couple of minutes, um, but any any sort of comeback or observations or questions? Luke. Um, Do you think the physical thing is so important for us in a couple of ways? Like, you said, so much of our world and jobs is like literally moving things around on screens and things need to exist. So that sense of dissonance from the physical world. Yes. yeah, you know, Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. So, what do all we think about when the kingdom of heaven? Yeah. Nothing physical. Yeah. At all. Yeah. And eschatologically, our thinking is, oh, it's way being this out there, which obviously it isn't. Yes. So, I think this is really important for seeing for people to understand the the, the importance of the stuffness of their life, but also of that yes. future as well. Yes. So, I think we need to. Yeah, definitely. And uh, and um, 
as I said, this Joe Minich book was really interesting like this because it's not, it's not why I've done it for years, I suppose, or, or talked about it. But I've, I hadn't really noticed how the... To use the sort of fancy terminology, how the plausibility structures of modern secularism and atheism are built on a mediated technology-infested world because they remove, they make divine agency look less and less plausible just because everything you get is mediated through human contact or human devices. And so the, actually, if you want a, a generation to be atheist, one of the key things you need to do is give them tools to make sure that they just don't see very much of what God has made in a given day. Um, it, unless it's mediated through human devices like televisions or websites or whatever. And so I think there's a sort of broad... Now, obviously, to some degree, that's a, that's a slightly pessimistic point because we're clearly not going to be able to... Unless you become a total Luddite and destroy technology for the sake of the gospel, you're, you're probably not going to be able to uninvent the wheel and that sort of thing. But I, I still think it's wise for us in discipleship. Just Even those of us who take young people out of cities and do camping... I mean, I don't just mean like at New Day. I mean, just going out and people who do things out of the woods or scout camps. It's weird how sometimes just being out and seeing the world... Even how often do you see... Oh, it sounds very Coldplay. A sky full of stars. In Britain, almost never. I mean, I've only once seen a properly starry sky in Britain, and that was in Mount Snowden. And other than that, you just... Around where I live, you just... You don't. You see a few. And some of you, some of you know Steph Liston, but when he... He took his kids out of London when they were little, and they went, I think they went to Centre Parks, and one of his kids looked, pointed at the sky and went, look, I had fireworks, because they'd never seen stars. Like, they just didn't know what they were. And I'm like, what? But that is, round here, that's what it's like. But actually getting people out of that to be able to say, this world is, God has made it, and it was good, and we need to be able to see it, without us therefore becoming, you know, eco tourists or effectively but i do think there is a danger to people being overly formed by man created stuff and only you know so yes i think i thoroughly agree yeah joe yeah that seems um helpful i understand the kind of logic in how people get their portability structure over secularism from that is there a danger obviously with matthew's context you know he's not they didn't have computer screens and aeroplanes, and so it's not deliberately not going there. Do you know what I mean? For us to read in to say that he's making a point of using things in an agrarian kind of natural world, where obviously that was the only world. No, I absolutely agree. I don't think Luke's saying that at all. I think he's saying for us, using physical stuff, given the, the kind of you didn't use the word Gnosticism, but the, the danger we have of thinking that the, the material world is really not all that and actually everything can either be spiritualised or turned in, into... or digitised. For our generation, it's particularly important to do this. I think that's what he's saying, rather than Matthew is making that point. I agree he's not making that point. That's where we ended up with Rich, um, with the sort of back and forth. <laughs> Sorry, this is very... Obvious. Rich has come to a lot of these events we know each other well, so I hope it's okay. But, um, so no, I'm not saying Matthew's doing that at all. And of course, and that is a point that Joe Minich make, makes in his book, because saying this is now true of cities, but effectively one of the questions he asks in the book is, why is it the case that cities were more Christian than the rest of the world for so much of church history, but in the, modern, in the last 200 years, cities have become much less Christian? And he says it because it's the influence of mediating technologies, initially factories, 
and now the digital revolution, which effectively means that whereas before, when you were in a city, you might have been surrounded with just as much nature and a lot more people, now you've got more people but almost no access to nature. So the, the meaning of the city has changed in its impact on formation and catechesis, which I think is, it feels quite a compelling point. Like I, I haven't seen a counter-argument to it yet, but it feels true. Um, so I know you're not a theological conference, you're not allowed to say it feels true. But when I read it, I thought, I buy that. That instinctively sounds like, yeah, I can see that is a thing. I can even see it in my, my own life. Um, so yeah, but I, I think the, you're right. Matthew's not doing that. Okay, should we break for tea and coffee? Um, we can pick up any remaining questions at the start of the next session. And we'll start again at half 11.